Natasha Cloud says her 2020 WNBA season was draining without playing in a single game. The 2019 champion guard with the Washington Mystics opted out of the season to devote her full energies to social justice initiatives in the aftermath of the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. For Cloud, trying to reform a system that has never been fair to Black Americans has been daunting, but there was no question that even an attempt to force change, starting in the District of Columbia where she plays, would outweigh in importance a Mystic's title defense. For Cloud, writing injustice starts with giving power back to the people, and that starts with voting. But we need to vote like our lives depend on it. And when I say that, I'm talking primarily to the black and brown community. We need to show up. There's no excuse for us not showing up like we, we did last uh, election. We are the deciding people in who runs our country. During a conversation in early October, Cloud weighed in on the urgency of the 2020 presidential election. Hear what Cloud has to say about voting, the Breonna Taylor case, the Trump supporters and her family, and why Joe Biden gets her vote. You are listening to The Hard Screen. I'm your host, Tamron Sproul. We'll be back with more right after this. I spoke with Natasha Cloud in early October on a range of topics, including voting, the Trump supporters and her family, and why Joe Biden gets her vote. First, I asked Natasha Cloud to describe her season of social justice work. Um, In talking about what's going on in our country right now and how it directly affects us, um, it was really hard when looking at social reform as a whole. Um, When you look at what needs to be fixed in America, it's actually really daunting. Um, Our systems are set up to keep the white status quo and to keep black and brown people out. With so much work to do, where does one even begin? Okay, what low-hanging fruit can we have immediate impact on? And that was voting. Uh, We have a huge election coming up November 3rd, but it's not only federally, it's also state and locally too. How do we register, first register people to vote? How do we educate them on who they're voting for? Uh, How do we make uh, the voting locations easily accessible and uh, to try to cut down voter suppression? Um, And then two, making sure people understand that in the case of Breonna Taylor, Daniel Cameron, who is not doing his job, he is an elected official. So it's not only important to vote in this presidential election coming up November 3rd, but it's so, so important to vote for your state and local government as well, because those people directly affect what you get in your community. 
Um, so voting has been our huge initiative in this push for uh, November 3rd, um, but that's not, that's not where it's going to stop. This is going to be a continued fight. Describe the day you learned that a Kentucky grand jury declined to charge the officers responsible for Breonna Taylor's death and that Daniel Cameron, the attorney general, did not give jurors the option to indict for murder. Absolutely. Uh, I think when you see the ruling, um, it, it, it was a really hard day the, the day that the ruling came out uh, because they announced that the National Guard would be coming in. And we all know what that means. I knew before the verdict even came out with the National Guard going in um, that we weren't going to get the results that we wanted, that Brianna and her family weren't going to receive justice. Um, and so you're met with that anger and you're, you're upset, you're confused, you're frustrated. Um, you're angry at Daniel Cameron um, as a black man um, to not protect your community, to not do your job that you took an oath uh, to do. It's uh, disgust was really what I felt that day. Um, but like my fellow sisters, it ignites that fuel in you and that fire in you even more because there's more to do. Um, she hasn't re received justice, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to fight for her to receive justice. Um, those cops murdered her. They murdered her. That that case in general was botched from top to bottom, even from them obtaining a warrant from a judge who had to sign off on it, who didn't read it at all, um, because in order to have a no-knock warrant, there needs to be a threat to police or a threat to the evidence that they think is in the home in which they had no evidence to prove that she was even affiliated. So um, even afterwards, after we were shot and murdered, the lives of, oh, our cops don't have nine millimeter handguns, they did. Um, the times are, are fixed on it. So it's, it's the thing of police corruption and police abuse of power and them not being able to be touched when they do make mistakes. Um, they murdered her. And, and, and that's, it's, it's very plain to me. It's very black and white. And when, when you're talking about this fight of social reform and when you're looking at police brutality, very daunting, again, because they are untouchable. Um, in all these cases, we don't ever see justice. Um, and I, I truly am a firm believer in, even in the case of Breonna Taylor, if you held those cops accountable for their actions, it changes how policemen and women go about their day. It changes how they handle situations with black and brown men and women every day because they understand that I can't just do what I want anymore. I'm going to be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable for, for my actions. And that will change drastically how, how policing is done. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's very simple to me, and it, it makes me even more infuriated to think um, that our system in power and our systems that are meant to bring justice to our country, they're corrupt just as much. Some believe defunding the police is the only way to bring about the accountability you're talking about. What are your thoughts on defunding the police and how accountability in policing can be achieved? Yeah, uh, I think defunding is a harsh word for a lot of people. Um, and when you say defunding, it, it ignites their, they have to be on defense. And what I tell people is that, listen, 
we can have a, a calm conversation where we discuss what I mean by defunding because I don't think we need to abolish our policemen and women. They protect our communities, the good ones. They protect our communities. They, they take an oath to serve our communities and protect them. There's a lot of bad apples, though, that need to be weeded out from top to bottom, whether that, whether that is police chiefs or just regular deputies. Um, we need to be able to get those, those bad apples out. Um, but defunding, to me, is allocating all, those, all that money that police departments get and cities get. Defunding, to me, means allocating that money elsewhere to take pressure off of our policemen and women because we put so much on their shoulders to be there for uh, domestic cases, to be there for mental health cases, to be there for um, the cases that people are under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Why not allocate that money into counselors? Why not allocate that money into social workers who can handle these other situations without force? So it not only takes pressure off and takes the workload off of our police officers to not have to deal with those situations that they are not trained for. And we also help our unemployment rate by hiring people that are specific to that field. Um, so for me, defunding does not mean abolishing. Um, defunding doesn't mean me saying Black Lives Matters does not mean I don't support the good men and women that wear blue. Um, and uh, so I think we need to stop being so quick to just hear defunding, hear Black Lives Matters, and get and feel like we're being being threatened. Listen, hear us. Listen to what we have to say. Listen to what we're trying to do moving forward. And I think people would have a different light on the issues if they would just do that. You've also done a lot of work in support of reforming gun laws. What correlation do you see between the everyday gun violence we see between civilians and police violence? Absolutely. I, I think what we see most of the time is a, a lack of concern and, and value on life. Um, that's what I've seen in a lot of these cases, whether it is violence within the community or it's police brutality. There's there's a lack of concern and value for life. And a lot of these lives are black and brown. Um, the violence is it's not a secret that in lower economic communities, violence is always at an all-time high. Um, and so for me, it's, it's the hardest thing is how do we bring back that value for life? How do we bring, bring back people's empathy and sympathy and humanity? Because feel like especially in these last four years under the president that we have uh, should have gotten worse and excuse my language, but mm -hmm. um, it, it truly, truly has. And so you see the intersectionality of everything. Everything plays a part in, in each other. And so it, again, it's really, really hard to pinpoint like, okay, where do we start? Where do we start and, and where do we take it head on at? Um, but for me, it's always been to just get in the community and be out there, be a face in the community, try to listen. Um, that's one thing that I've learned through this whole process is that I'm using my God-given platform to be a voice for the voiceless, but in order to do that, I first need to listen, especially to our lower economic communities. What do you guys need? What, we, we, we try stuff, but I don't necessarily think that 
we go into our communities and we hear their cries. Um, so, so let me listen, let me decipher through what you're telling me, and let me figure out how to best use my platform in order to attack those things. And um, even with, you know, the, the police brutality, if, if we can get everyone on the same damn board and working on all cylinders, it, it, tra- it changes drastically. With these problems being so entrenched and commonplace in our society, do you feel hopeful that solutions can be found that will lead to change? Um, how you police low economic communities. If they have opportunities and resources that middle class uh, communities have, do we have the same problem? Do we have the same policing? Mm-hmm. We don't. So how do we figure out how to get there? Uh, how, how do we figure out how to make our lower economic communities uh, better? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just been my uh, approach to it. And uh, I can tell you, I don't have the answer. If I did, <laughs> I wish I did. Um, that's but that's Trump for president. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I would be up there arguing with Trump. Um, <laughs> But, it, but it's hard, um, but that's what you continue to fight for is that I, I do have hope that there is a solution. I do have hope that uh, we will find our empathy and sympathy and our value for life again. Um, and I, I do have hope that a, a world that my future children will be brought into, they won't be, um, they won't be looked at for only the color of their skin. They'll be looked at for the human, per- the human being that they are and the good person that they are. We have more access to information than at any point in human history, yet people seem more misinformed and ignorant than ever before, especially when it comes to politics. Why is that? Oh, man, I've been trying to figure it out myself. Um, And and I'm I'm not even being um, funny because uh, I I say this all the time. I'm a Democrat because I grew up in a middle-class family, but if there was a better suited Republican to run, whether it was state, locally, or federally, I would vote Republican. Mm-hmm. And so we get so stuck in parties. I think that's the, <laughs> the first problem, especially with where we are right now in 2020 with November coming up, November 3rd coming up. We're so stuck in, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. I don't give a shit about that. At the end of the day, right now, it's, are you a good human being? Mm-hmm. Because we have seen, we have seen a, a, a racist run our country, a bigot, a sexist, a homophobic uh, man run our country, and spit hate and division into our country. And we've ne- I've never, I'm 28, and I know things have gotten and have been bad in our country, but I've never felt it be this bad um, mm-hmm. and so divided by race this much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for me, it's the first part is get out of being so loyal to your party that you ignore the signs that are right in front of you. You ignore the hate that is right in front of you. Um, so that's the first part is getting out of our parties. And then second is, like you said, all it takes is a simple Google search. <laughs> like, like there's so much information out there on not only our, our presidential candidates, but our state and local candidates as well that are running uh, to represent us that we just don't even acknowledge. Um, 
and, and, and that's, that's the most disappointing part for me is even having conversations. I have Trump supporters in my family, and it has been the hardest thing for me uh, to decipher through and uh, to emotionally get through because not only am I black, but I'm also bisexual. I'm also engaged to a female who now we have to rush our marriage out of fear that if Trump gets reelected and because Republicans hold the House, we might lose the validity of our marriage. We uh, might lose our ownership on our home. And having those conversations with my family members who are Trump supporters, they have no idea that this is going on. Mm-hmm. They have no idea that he tried to pass laws and bills that would prohibit us from adopting if, God forbid, either of us couldn't have children. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, so for me, it's, it's extremely frustrating that people don't educate themselves on the facts that they just want to sit and listen to whatever designated news station media outlet that they prefer and they get whatever side it is um, of the two. And so that that's the most frustrating part for me is that there is this information out there and we're not utilizing it uh, because there are a lot of ignorant people out there that don't understand why we're continuing this fight for LGBTQ plus rights while we're fighting this fight for Black Lives Matter. They yeah. don't understand to the depth that this affects us in our everyday life. Um, yeah. Because for a lot of people, it doesn't affect them. For my sister who's married to a man who want to have children in the future, who live, or who are white on top of it, this, this doesn't affect you. You don't see this. can you explain what you've done specifically to bring disenfranchised voters into the electoral process? The biggest thing for me has been of recent, um, where we play is that entertainment and sports arena in Southeast DC, which is home to Ward 7 and 8, which obviously are lower economic uh, communities within DC. The voter suppression has been terrible there for years. There's been voters who said that they had to wait five hours in line um, just to cast a vote. And so, you know, our first initiative was to get Capital One Arena, which is where the Wizards play, available as a polling location. We did that as me, Bradley Deal, our social uh, advocacy group in D.C. that we established, we got that done. And then, uh, I think it was last week, week and a half ago, I found out that Entertainment and Sports Arena had said no to being a polling location for Ward 7 and 8. Um, so for me, I immediately put to social media um, to make sure that all my followers knew that this is what was going on, um, but also put pressure on the CEO of Entertainment and Sports Arena um, because we own half of the building. So we own our locker room, the practice courts, and all that stuff. But the actual court that we play on, we don't own that space. Um, so putting pressure on events DC um, to be better, because um, when we moved into Southeast DC, we said we would be a part of the solution. I told them from the jump that I will not be a part of anything that has to do with gentr- gentrifying uh, that community. Um, so for me, it was holding them accountable. You've been listening to The Hard Screen. I'm your host, Tamron Sproul. Special thanks and shout out to Natasha Cloud 
for such a candid and important in-depth discussion on voter suppression and the importance of the November 3rd election. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, the one thing I've just been ending uh, all my interviews with is uh, please vote, please register to vote, please be ready to either mail in your ballots early, vote early, or show up on November 3rd. Um, but we need to vote like our lives depend on it. And when I say that, I'm talking primarily to the black and brown community. We need to show up. There's no excuse for us not showing up like we, we did last uh, election. We are the deciding people in who runs our country. And I know that we don't have the best of two candidates, but um, when you're talking about getting back to being empathetic and sympathetic and having a human being run our country, it is Biden. It is Biden through and through. And, and so um, it's Biden 2020, and please go out and vote. This episode was produced by me, and the show music was composed by me. Election Day is November 3rd. Get out there and vote. Yep. Getting equity as, as Black and Brown Americans, it doesn't take away from your privilege as, as being white in America. No, I was just going to say thank you so much. Um, I can't do this alone. And my platform's only so big, so when I do have interviews, I make sure to let you know how much I appreciate it because um, this is the difference, and this is going to be the difference. So I really appreciate you giving me a platform for my voice. I appreciate it. And tell your partner we're getting married. <laughs> I know, too. He's going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa.